Welcome to the Jumpstart Your Faith podcast channel, where you will receive the essential tools to take your faith to the next level. I am your host, Brian Ratliff, and I currently pastor Clearbrook Baptist Church in Roanoke, Virginia. Here is the latest message preached from one of our services. Grab your Bible, pen, notepad, and get ready to jumpstart your faith. Today we continue our series called Signs of Christ's Second Coming, and tonight we are on part number three, verses 29 through 35 of Matthew chapter 24. Before we dive into our text this evening, I want you to know this, that when it comes to anything, especially pertaining to the very words of Scripture, I am interested in the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. The Bible tells us here that Jesus Christ in verse number 35, places a high priority and a very extreme emphasis on his very own words. He says the heavens, he says the earth, he says all of that and everything within them are going to pass away. They will cease to exist. But he says very profoundly, but at the very same time, very simply, he says my words shall not pass away. The Bible tells us in the Psalms, it says that God's word is true from the beginning and every one of his righteous judgments endures forever. In fact, the psalmist tells us that God has magnified his word above his own name. And we know that the name of Jesus is the greatest name in all the earth and that at his name, every knee is going to bow. And at his name, every tongue will confess Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We read in the, in the Old Testament prophets about how the Bible says that, that the grass withers, the flower fades, but God's word shall stand forever. We read the same in Peter. We see that God's word is important. We see that God's word is inerrant. We see that God's word is inerrant. We see that God's word is preserved in our own very language today. Now, the book you're holding there or, or you're referencing on your tablet or device, the, the words that we have right now we're meditating in, these are the inspired and errant, infallible, preserved word of the living God. Not opinions of man, but oracles. And tonight, I just want to share with you that if God's word is true concerning soteriology or the doctrine of salvation, how salvation is by grace through faith, faith alone, grace alone, and in Christ alone. If it's true in that area, if it's also true concerning the doctrine of angelology about angels, the doctrine of angels, if it's also true about the doctrine of demonology or the doctrine of demons, if it's also true about Satanology, the doctrine of Satan himself, if the Bible's true, and all of these ologies that we could go through, Christology, pneumatology, patriology, all of them, then I submit to you today that the Bible is also true in its eschatology. That is the doctrine of the last things, or the doctrine of end times, or Bible prophecy. If the Bible gives us clear, distinctive truths about all the other issues, then we can assume, rightly, that it will also give us the truth about the last days. And tonight, we believe that as we've been studying this chapter, that Jesus is on top of the Mount of Olives, where one day He will stand again and declare His victory 
over the Antichrist and then proceed to establish his kingdom, we know that right here the disciples have come and they say, Lord, when will you set your kingdom up and when will be the signs of the end of the world and your coming? And tonight we've know that the past three Wednesdays or the past couple Wednesdays, we've looked at the other things. We've looked at the minor signs such as the earthquakes, the famines, the pestilences, the wars, and the false messiahs. Those are the minor road signs. And then last week we looked at the major road signs, such as the abomination of desolation, such as those fleeing to the mountains, and, and, and we looked at a few others. Tonight, I want to look at the immediate signs of Christ's second coming. Remember, before we dive into this passage this evening, before we get a little too deep here, uh, I want you to know our key statement for all of these messages in Matthew chapter 24. It's this, Bible prophecy was not written to scare us, but it was written to prepare us. So God has not given us these words to frighten us, but He's given us these words to enlighten us about what His Word says about His future kingdom and His future coming and His return. So what are the immediate signs of Christ's second coming? Before we dive into these things, I've got five of them for you that I want to share with you. As we're driving down this road, as we've seen the minor road signs, we've seen the major road signs, now we're about to see the immediate ones. That is, when you begin to see these, you know that, that you can literally see Jesus up in the clouds and He's going to come and return and establish His kingdom. But I want to draw your attention right now to verse 29. It says, immediately after the tribulation of those days... Before we dive in here, we need to just understand the tribulation is a time period that this world has yet to see. A time of trial that nobody's ever experienced before. The Bible calls it the, the time of Jacob's trouble, where people will be going through a trial that our mind just cannot seem to fully comprehend. The judgments of Almighty God will be poured out as we read about in the book of Revelation. We see water being turned into blood. We see all sorts of these different uh, judgments pouring down. We see that, that there's going to be a major holocaust, dying, people dying left and right. But in the midst of all of that, we know that there's going to be a great revival as we saw last week. But as I touched on last week, I do not believe, according to the very words of God, when you begin to connect all the dots, that this tribulation is for the church. The Bible tells us that God has not given us um, over to, um, to His wrath. That He's not appointed us to His wrath, but to obtain salvation of the Lord. And here, just before we dive into here, I know last week we looked at the few different views, the six different views of the rapture. But tonight, I just want to kind of a little bit more extensively, by means of introduction, just share with you seven specific reasons why I believe in a pre-tribulational pre view of the rapture and why we are not going to be here during this great tribulation. Now, I want you to buckle your seatbelts, my brothers, my sisters, because tonight we are going to be covering a lot of ground. And I want you to not get so focused on necessarily taking notes, but I want you to absorb the content and perhaps maybe go back and listen to it again and again to write down all the specifics of what I'm about to share with you. Now, my introduction, introduction is this. Number one, the first reason why we are not going to go through the rapture is this. 
I, I briefly mentioned this last time, but Revelation chapter 2 and 3 speaks of the church on the earth. And chapters 4 through 5 speak of the church in heaven. But beginning with chapter 6, which introduces the tribulation period, there is no mention of the church that we know of until chapter 18. Reason number two, the New Testament is abstinent of instructing how the church should endure and conduct itself during the tribulation period. In other words, that if we were called and commanded to experience this level of tribulation that the Bible calls the great tribulation, that Jesus called the great tribulation down in verse number 21, then do you, don't you think that Paul would have wrote about it in his letters, that John would have wrote about it in his letters, instructing the church, and Peter would have talked about it more extensively, about how, how we can um, uh, conduct ourselves and how we're going to supposed to live during this time? The Bible is silent on that. So therefore, we believe that because the Bible's silent, we have reason to believe we're not going to be here. Number three. If it is to occur at the end of the tribulation, right here, speaking of verse 29, after the tribulation, if this is support for the post-tribulational view of the rapture, then this is the, the, the main problem. If it is to occur at the end of the tribulation, the rapture would seem pointless. The church not only would not be spared the torments of the tribulation, but would almost immediately turn around, as it were, and come back to the earth with Christ. Otherwise, who would be left to... Uh, who would be left on the earth during the millennium? The unredeemed would have been destroyed. They've been dead because of all the judgments and the war of the, of the Armageddon battle. And then the returning saints from heaven will have spiritual bodies and will not be married to have families. Yet human life will carry on during the millennium with children being born just as before. Therefore, that's why the church as we know of is not going to be present during the tribulation. Number four, Jesus' promise to the church of Philadelphia is more than a promise to that local body of believers and more than a promise to keep them from the ordinary testing. That hour of testing will come upon the whole world, the Bible says, and it will test all those who dwell upon the earth. The Lord promises that the whole church, those who have kept the word of my perseverance, the Bible says, will be kept from the perils and agonies of the tribulation. It's Revelation chapter 3, verse 10. Number five, Jesus promised those who believe in him that he is going to prepare places for all of them in his father's house and that he would come again and receive them to himself. According to post-tribulational view, he would not be taking believers back to heaven to dwell with him, but simply meeting them quickly in the air and returning with them immediately to the earth. The problem is, is when does the judgment seat of Christ take place? When does the marriage supper of the Lamb take place? We believe that those take place, those events take place during the tribulational period. And if the church is during the tribulational period, we can't, ex we can't go, when, when are you going to place those in the calendar of events? It makes no sense. Yet he said he was preparing a place for his people to dwell, not to just visit briefly. Number six. The first 69 weeks of the 70th week period of Daniel's prophecy lasted from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. That is the decree issued by King Artaxerxes in 455 B.C., Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, until the Messiah. And that is Daniel chapter 9, verse 25. That is, 
the time of Christ. It has been calculated that exactly 483 years, that is 69 weeks of years, as we talked about last time, elapsed from that decree of Artaxerxes until Jesus' entry into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday when he was acclaimed Messiah and King by the multitudes. That prophecy of Daniel was given to and about Israel, and it seems inappropriate to involve the church in the last week, that is the seven-year period of the tribulation when it clearly was not involved in the first 69 weeks. And then the last one, before we dive into our passage. If the rapture will not occur until after the tribulation, Paul's words of assurance to the Thessalonican church beg for relevance. Some of the believers in that church thought their believing loved ones who had died would miss the rapture. Paul encouraged them with those words in, in chapter 4 about how the dead in Christ will rise first and we which are alive will remain and be caught up together with him in the air. Speaking of the rapture, it says, Had the early church been expecting to endure the tribulation rather than enjoy the rapture, they would have rejoiced that their loved ones had already died and thereby escaped that horrible trial. But they were obviously looking forward to something joyous, which they thought their departed loved ones and friends would not experience. They were not looking forward to the Antichrist, but to the Christ. They were not looking for, forward to the ordeal of the tribulation, but for the glory of the rapture of the saints. They were not looking for the terror of the Antichrist appearing, but for the blessed hope of Christ Jesus' appearing on the earth. With all that in mind, let's move forward to our passage. It says immediately after the tribulation. So the church was raptured out of here before the tribulation started. We have seven years. The first seven and a half years is three and a half years of peace. The Antichrist makes a peace treaty deal with the nation of Israel. Then three and a half years in, he breaks that peace treaty with Israel. He, he comes in and, and he marches into the great temple that was rebuilt for the sacrificial purposes of the Jewish faith and the system that was, that's back in Levitical and Deuteronomic laws. And then he marches in there, declares himself to be God, and demands people to worship him. And these events are the immediate events that are going to transpire right as we see him coming. We've seen the minor, we've seen the major. Now let's look at the immediate ones. Look at verse number 29. At verse 29, we see the first one. As we're driving on this road, we're going to see five immediate road signs of Christ's second coming. Number one is the, is the sign of wonders in the heavens. The sign of wonders in the heavens. Look at verse 29. It says, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, check it out now, shall the sun be darkened, and the moon shall not give her light, and the stars shall fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens shall be shaken. I have not said this so far, but it is good to know that three out of the four Gospels record this discourse on the Mount of Olives, Jesus' sermon on the Mount of Olives, because it was extremely important. But what's interesting is when you begin to study the parallel passage in, in Mark chapter 13 and Luke chapter 21, you'll find that, that some of them give a little bit of extra insight, and then sometimes Matthew's gospel, and in fact, for, for the vast majority, Matthew's gospel gives the most insight, but sometimes the other writers give a little extra insight that, that Matthew did not speak of. 
And it's interesting. I want you to just know this, that in Luke's gospel, chapter 21, verses 25 and 26, the Bible elaborates a little bit more on what Jesus said on the Mount of Olives. And it says, and there shall be signs in the sun and in the moon and in the stars and upon the earth. Distress. This is a part that's not included in Matthew's gospel. It says, it says, upon the earth, distress of nations with perplexity, the earth and the waves roaring. Men's hearts failing them for fear and looking for after those things which are coming on the earth. For the powers of heaven shall be shaken. So the signs of great wonders in the heavens. We see the sun is going to be turned into darkness. We see the moon is not going to give her light. We see the stars from heaven are going to fall down from the sky. We see the Bible says here in Luke's gospel that the nations will be full of distress. That there will be great perplexity, uncertainty with the seas. The seas, the oceans, the waters are going to rage. Then it also says that mankind's hearts are going to be full of fear. They're going to look out to the sun and it will no longer give its light. They'll look at the moon, trying to find the moon, and the moon will no longer give its light. They'll see stars coming down from heaven. Perhaps these stars are going to fly in. These asteroids are going to come in and hit the earth. Uh, our minds can only imagine of, of these words that are being spoken of by Jesus. And the Bible says that mankind is going to be full of fear. There's going to be great distress. There's going to be great sorrow. And perhaps these, these comets or these asteroids, whatever you want, meteoroids, whatever you want to call them, they're going to come in and hit the earth and they're going to hurt, hit the seas and cause the major waves, perhaps even tidal waves and tsunamis. Our minds can only speculate what's going to take place. This is the first immediate sign that when we see all of these things take place, know that Jesus is about ready to step through the portals of heaven to earth. May I share with you the second immediate road sign of Christ's second coming? We've seen these wonders in the heavens. But now I want to share with you, secondly, the sign of the Son of Man in the sky. The sign of the Son of Man in the sky. Remember, Bible prophecy was not written to scare us, but it was written to prepare us. We're trying to ask and answer this question. What are the immediate road signs of Christ's second coming? And we've looked at one so far. Now we're going to dive in to the actual sign of the Son of Man appearing in the sky. Look at verse number 30. The Bible tells us right here. It says, And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. At this moment... The nations of all the world are going to look up to the skies and they're going to see Jesus Christ. In that moment, the Bible is going to be fulfilling all of the rest, not just Jesus' words here, but the words in the Old Testament prophets of how they predicted and prophesied that Jesus would be appearing in the sky. And then he will eventually establish his kingdom. But can you imagine just being in their shoes? You see, the Jewish people looking up to the sky, the ones who were saved, then the Gentile believers who got saved, they look up to the sky and they see, finally, our Savior has come. And then, imagine great joy in the hearts of the believers, 
but great fear. But great fear for all those unbelievers who defied the words of Jesus Christ. Imagine the thoughts going through the Antichrist's mind and the false prophet and the beast during that period. Imagine what they're going through. They're thinking in their cells, oh, oh, we can overcome this one. But no, they cannot, my friend. The sign of the Son of Man coming in the sky. I like what Mark says. Mark says these words about this particular section. Mark chapter 13 and verse 26, the first part, it says, And then shall they see the Son of Man coming in the clouds. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. He is coming back. Remember what, 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 what the writer of Acts says, we believe Luke wrote it, and he said the disciples looked around, and, they, and, they, and they, after the resurrection, he said, remember, this is not the only time that the disciples asked him about his future coming and the establishment of the kingdom. And, and in Acts chapter 1, we see that they ask him again, are you going to restore the kingdom now? And Jesus goes up, and there's two, we believe, angels. The Bible says two men uh, in a white apparel, most likely angelic beings. And then the Bible says that as, 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 as Jesus, the Son of Man, ascended up into glory, I love this part. These men looked to them and said, in like manner, he's going to come back again. And so we see right here in Matthew's gospel, we see in Mark's gospel, and then we see in Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 21, and then verse number 27, the Bible says these words from this perspective. It says, it says this, and then after all these signs, the Bible says, and then shall they see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Matthew said, and then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. Check it out now. I was kind of speculating a little bit what's going to happen on the earth, but we see what's going to happen. Then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn. They will begin to mourn because in that moment, they might have been deluded with the, with the lies of the enemy. But in that moment, they will realize that Jesus was the Messiah. That Jesus died on the cross 2,000 years ago in our state. That Jesus Christ was ro rose victoriously from the grave. That he ascended up into glory and then they see his descension coming down. And in that moment they'll realize that they are lost and they're destined for eternity separated from God and hell. May God have mercy on those souls of men in that day. The sign is a rejoiceful sign for believers. It's a great sign for us, but it is a horrific sign for all the people who reject Jesus as Savior during the tribulational period. What are these immediate road signs of Christ's return? So far, we've seen the sign of the Son of Man appearing in the sky. And we've also seen the sign of great wonders in the heavens. And as we continue to drive down through this road, they've just seen these magnificent, marvelous, unexpected, unimaginable things happen with the sun, moon, stars, and the earth. Then they see the appearance of the Son of Man in the sky. And then in the midst of His appearance, each of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, speak about how the sign of the strength and glory of the Lord. So that's the third road sign. So they see the signs of great wonders in heaven. They see the Son of Man. But then they see the sign of great strength and great glory of the Lord himself. Right here in verse number 30, the Bible says that the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven, it says, with power, omnipotence. He is the omnipotent, all-powerful God of the universe. 
The God who spoke the world into existence is the same God who can thunder down his judgment upon the world, but at the same time, the same God that can thunder down his grace and mercy upon all those who cry out to him for salvation. And we still see God's grace and mercy in the great tribulational period because 144,000 Jewish people, 12,000 of each tribe are going to be saved and then they're going to be used to evangelize the world and we're going to see Jewish people come to know Christ. We're going to see Gentiles come to know Christ. We're going to see the, the prophets, I believe Moses and Elijah, are going to be out preaching and they're going to receive the message. We see the angel that's going to be shouting out the message of the gospel of the kingdom in all the world and we see God's grace showering down in the midst of judgment. And here we see his power. He's powerful, man. The most powerful God that this world has ever experienced. And in fact, the only God more powerful than Tesla. More powerful than those batteries placed in the automobile to operate that car. More powerful than the, the device on the side of your houses to power your whole system and whole, all your uh, electronics and your stove and your microwave, everything. More powerful than Appalachian Power AP. This God is the most powerful being in all the world. More powerful than Satan. More powerful than the beast. More powerful than the Antichrist. More powerful than the false prophet. More powerful than any other creature in this world. More powerful than Lucifer. More powerful than Michael. More powerful than Gabriel. More powerful than any president, any leader of any tribe, of any creed. This is the omnipotent, powerful God, full of great strength. And that's why I believe they're in great fear. Because they know that the army that we're about to talk about cannot overcome this one. The Son of Man comes with great power, but also it says with great glory. So we see the omnipotent God, but we also see the majestic, awe-strucking God. Have you ever gone up a mountain and, and, and seen a breathtaking view and you were just speechless? So many times when I was in Israel, I was absolutely speechless. There I was on the Mount of Olives hearing a, a devotional thought about the second coming of Christ. There I was, not just in the Mount of Olives, but then we transition, we go to Megiddo, the place that we're about to talk about of Armageddon. And I was, I was in complete awe of, of all the dots being connected in my mind about these eschatological end times, Bible prophecy events. And, and I just think to myself, I have no words to say because God is the great, glorious, almighty, majestic king of the world. And I'll tell you, when the world sees him, when he comes in the near future, I believe, in the clouds, they will recognize that he is the truth, he is the way, he is the life, but he's also full of great power and great glory. Paul said, God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ deserves every ounce of glory in our lives. He's going to get the glory and all that we got going on in our world today. He's going to get the praise. He's going to get the laud. He's going to get the worship. He deserves it. The only one that does. And the world will finally recognize that when they see him in the clouds. But I wonder, will you recognize that today? Will you recognize that he is the all-powerful God? That he is the all-glorious God? And that you, will you recognize your need for his salvation today? It's interesting. In this passage... The Bible doesn't specifically talk about the battle of Armageddon. But I know in your mind, you're probably asking yourself, where does it fit in this passage? 
I believe it fits between verse 30 and verse 31. And I'm going to share with you what other theologians have said about the battle of Armageddon. But, but this battle is mentioned in Daniel chapter 11, is mentioned in Joe, Joel chapter 3, is mentioned in Zechariah chapter 14, and mentioned in Revelation chapter 16. I, I, in a sense, I believe that all the world, world wars that we've seen, the, the wars and rumors of wars in this passage that Jesus is speaking about, I think that all of them are, in a sense, anticipating and awaiting for one day there will be a greater war that our world has ever seen, the battle of Armageddon. And these, in a sense, are what many theologians have labeled as the eight stages of Armageddon. Like I said, there's a lot of information in this, in this message tonight, but, but full of information so that our minds can be full of the Word of God so that we can experience transformation by the information found in the words of inspiration. There's eight stages of the battle of Armageddon. Number one is this. I'm going to briefly go through these. The assembling of the allies of the Antichrist. Joel chapter 3, Psalm number 2, and Revelation 16 speaks of this. How, how the allies... The people who, who are on the side of the Antichrist, they're going to gather together. They're going to come together for war and prepare. Then in the midst of them gathering together, I've been to Megiddo, the place where, where we think that all this will transpire, the Battle of Armageddon. Now, in the midst of, of the Antichrist's rule and reign, there will be some opposition, and he's going to overthrow them at this assemble, we think. And then, in the midst of him gathering together with his allies and doing all that stuff, there's going to be the destruction of Babylon. That was, that's going to be his capital. Just as God's capital is Jerusalem, the Antichrist's capital is going to be Babylon. So, the ancient Babylon, as we, we read about in Daniel's period, amidst, uh, in the midst of all that prophecy, we know that according to Revelation, the ancient Babylon is going to be reestablished and resurrected. And then at that moment, Babylon is going to be destroyed, perhaps by the Lord himself. We read about this in Isaiah 13 and 14, Jeremiah 50 and 51, and Revelation chapter 17 and 18. And then the Antichrist is going to seek to conquer Jerusalem. And we see in Micah chapter 4, verse 11 through chapter 5, verse 1, Jerusalem falls. They do. And then, remember Jesus said earlier that when you see the abomination of desolation during this tribulation period, three and a half years in, declares himself to be God and demands worship, when you see the men flee to the mountains, you see, the Antichrist marches after that battle there in, in, we believe, Megiddo. He begins the transition and marches his way towards Jerusalem because he wants to conquer Jerusalem. And then after Jerusalem, he conquers that territory. Then he wants to go to the mountains to overcome all the Jewish people who believe in Jesus and to annihilate them infinitely. You see, God's plan has always been a plan for Israel. And so the enemy, Satan and the Antichrist, wants to annihilate that nation once and for all. And so, the fourth stage, we see the armies of the Antichrist at Basra, Jeremiah chapter 49. And there, we think that, that in the midst of, of that territory, where they're on the mountains trying to find these Jewish believers who have, who have run, who have fled, we see in that moment, 
The fifth stage is a national regeneration of Israel. They've seen Jerusalem destroyed. They've seen the power. They saw through the deception of the, and the delusion of the Antichrist. And now the fifth stage is, is they begin to cry out to God and they recognize Him as Messiah, Jesus. And they pour out their heart to Him and declare He is who He said He was, the Son of God, and that they want His mercy. We read about this in Psalm 79, Psalm 80, Isaiah 64, Hosea 6, Joel 2, Zechariah 12, and Romans. Romans chapter 11. And then God answers their prayer immediately. Immediately. They see the Son of Man appearing in the sky. You can never tell me God doesn't answer prayer because He does. Isaiah 34, Isaiah 63, Habakkuk 3, Micah chapter 2 all speaks about the second coming of Christ. And then we see that Jesus is going to come. And there's going to be a battle from Basra to the Valley of Jehoshaphat. This is a large territory that's going to span. This, this battle, we, 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 we think that, that it's not going to last in just a moment, that it perhaps could be several days or several weeks. Battles and wars take time. And this ultimate battle between the enemy of God, the Antichrist, and Christ himself will take place. Number seven, we read about that in Jeremiah 49, Zechariah 14, and Joel 3. And then we see that after that battle, Jesus overcomes, destroys them, the Antichrist being one of the first captives. And then the A stage is this, the victory ascent upon the Mount of Olives. We see that in Zechariah chapter 14, Joel chapter 3, Matthew 24, as we're reading here, Revelation 16 and 19, that Jesus, after the Antichrist is defeated, and he throws them, in, him and the false prophet, into the lake of fire, we see that Jesus is going to set his foot on top of the Mount of Olives, there's going to be a massive earthquake that I, I believe in a sense, all these earthquakes that we're reading about and hearing about today and in this time in Matthew 24 is all leading up to the magnificent magnitude of the earthquake spoken of in Revelation. We don't have to worry about this battle because the Bible talks about Jesus and his angels are going to come in and take care of it all. And between verses 30 and 31, we see that transpires. Jesus claims victory. And then we see the fourth sign. So what are these immediate signs? First of all, we saw the sign of the great wonders in the heavens. We saw the sign of the Son of Man appearing in the sky. We saw the sign of great strength and great glory of the Lord himself. But then number four, but before I share it, remember, Bible prophecy was not written to scare us. It was written to prepare us. It was not written to frighten us, but written to enlighten us. And now I want to share with you, fourthly, from verse 31, I wrote down this, the sign of the angels gathering the elect from the four corners of the world. The sign of the angels gathering the elect. Verse 31. The Bible says, And he shall send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, not the rapture. That already took place. This is not referring to the rapture. This is referring to the gathering together of the elect. That is the believers of God and Jesus, Jewish, Gentile, all those who know Christ as Savior, who lived in the tribulation period. He's going to gather them all together because the Bible talks about how they scattered, man. They scattered, they fled to the mountains, as he said. And then it says, And they shall gather together his elect from the four winds, 
from one end of heaven to the other. Now, it's interesting. Matthew's gospel and Mark's gospel are the only two gospels that records this particular language. And in Mark chapter 13 and verse 27, I want to read it to you. It says, And then shall he send his angels and shall gather together his elect from the four winds from the uttermost part of the earth to the uttermost part of heaven. And then gathers them all together and then establishes his earthly kingdom. The literal, physical, earthly kingdom. Just very briefly, like I said, we've got a whole lot to cover in a little amount of time. I want to share with you briefly the three different views of the millennium and why I believe in premillennialism. The first one is postmillennialism. That says that after the thousand years, Jesus will return. This just does not line up with, with really any evidence in Scripture. If we're going to be true to these passages of the Old Testament and to the New Testament, Jesus obviously comes before he establishes his kingdom. So we can throw that out. And really, after the wars begin to break out with the World War I and II, this began to be not a popularized view of the millennium. Then you have, I would say, one that's gained a lot of traction today due to certain theologians like R.C. Sproul and a few others. But you have what's called amillennialism. And this view teaches that there will be no millennium. This view also teaches that Satan is already bound, as the Bible speaks of in Revelation 20. Amillennialism, in its efforts to say that there will be no millennium, they spiritualize all the Old Testament predictions about the millennium and Revelation. They say that everything that happened in Revelation, chap the chapters about the tribulation period and all that and the millennium, all transpired um, back in the day. And in fact, some of them even go far to say that we're living in the millennium now. The last time I checked, the lion is not lying down with a lamb. The last time I checked, there is not global peace on this earth. The last time I checked, I have not seen Jesus return in the clouds. I have not seen him as my king on this earth like a regular king would rule. So if we're going to be true to the very words of Scripture, this is not a biblical viewpoint. The only one that really makes sense when you begin to study all the and connect all the dots of, of end times Bible prophecy is premillennialism. And that means that, that, that right before Jesus establishes his earthly kingdom, a thousand year reign, he will return. So, I'm going to run through these reasons why I'm a premillennialist. And I'm not going to tarry. I'm just going to read them. There's 10 of them. I got 10 reasons for you. Number one, God has promised a literal kingdom to a restored Israel. Number two, God will give Abraham's descendants the land he promised to them forever. Number three, God's covenant with Israel has never been forfeited or canceled. Number four, the nation of Israel will come back to inherit the land forever. Number five, the second coming of Christ will result in the establishment of a literal kingdom on earth. Number six, the kingdom of Christ on earth will last 1,000 years, as it says six specific times in Revelation 20, verses 1 through 6. Number seven, the temple of Ezekiel's vision will literally exist during the millennial reign of Christ mentioned in Ezekiel chapters 40 through 48. 
Number eight, redeemed Israel and the raptured church will reign with Christ on earth. Number nine, God's promises concerning Jerusalem will be fulfilled literally. And number 10, the throne of David will be set up in Jerusalem with Jesus Christ, the Messiah of Israel, the son of David, literally ruling upon it in his millennial kingdom. What are the immediate signs of Christ's second coming? Well, we've looked so far, the sign of the angels gathering the elect, and that is the signal that when that happens, the earthly kingdom will be established. The sign of great strength and great glory of the Son of God himself. The sign of the Son of Man appearing in the sky, and then the sign of great wonders in the heavens. But now I want to share with you fifthly and finally, as we come to verses 32 down through verse 35, I wrote down this, the sign of of that great generation, excuse me, the sign of that generation not passing away. The sign of that generation not passing away. This is mentioned in Matthew, Mark, Luke, all three of these gospels that record this sermon. But the question we have is we see this parable. The Bible says Jesus often spoke in parables and, and he speaks in a few parables on the Mount of Olives. And he says, now learn a parable of the fig tree. He says, when his branch is yet tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is nigh. And he says, so likewise you, when you shall see all these things, know that it is near, even at the doors. He says, when you, just as you see the fig tree bud, you know summer is nigh. He says, when you see all of these events, know that the establishment of the kingdom is nigh, even at the doors. It's literally knocking on the door and you open up and it's done. But then the controversial verse probably one of the most controversial verses in this whole chapter. Jesus says, verse 34, Verily I say unto you, this generation shall not pass away till all these things be fulfilled. I used to be very intimidated by end times, by prophecy, and the doctrine of the last things. And I guess because I never really dug into scriptures for myself, and tried to connect all the dots and study it firsthand. I knew what to say, but I could not connect all the dots with the passages of Scripture. And so when somebody would come up to me and ask me a question, who is this generation referring to? I had no clue. I had no idea because I did not know. And so I would often refer them to Pastor English and maybe a few other people within our church. And I want to share with you, some people teach that this generation is a reference to the disciples' generation. That is, the people living right there in the days that Jesus spoke. That just can't be true. Because everything that Jesus is speaking about in this passage, except, well, really, even the destruction of the temple, that was a near, near prophecy. But everything else is a future prophecy far beyond the destruction of the temple. So this cannot be the generation of the disciples. It has to be a future. Then some people refer to this as the Jewish people themselves. And I guess, in a sense, it could be because... They're still in existence, but, but, but really, if you label it as, as Jewish people just that generic, it's too generic and not, not very specific because I believe that, that Jesus is being specific here about a specific people going through a specific thing so we can rule that out. Then it, then it says this. Another says that reference to Christ rejecting people of Jesus' day. So all the people that rejected Christ are the ones speaking of here. It just does not hold up when you begin to read the words of Scripture and try to connect all the dots. Here's the one. It says, reference to people living during the end times who will view those signs. And here is what one commentator said, and, and I fully agree. This generation will therefore be composed of Jews 
and Gentiles who are alive at the rapture but are not taken up because they do not know the Lord Jesus Christ. Among that generation, however, will be many who will later come to salvation during the tribulation through the witness of the divinely called and protected 144,000 Jewish believers and the supernatural preaching of the angelic messenger. When these events begin to take place, the abomination of, of desolation is revealed. When the tribulation starts, the, the, the people who are not taken up in the rapture, that is that generation what's referring to. So a generation here, we know that when the tribulation starts, right after the rapture is going to be seven years. And so we see that seven years is not going to kill everybody in that generation. Now there will be people of that generation that will die, but that generation will not die itself. And that's what Jesus was referring to right here in verse 34. In conclusion, we've seen the sign of that generation not passing away. The future generation who lives during the period of the rapture and the tribulation. We see the sign of the angels being gathered together, uh, the angels gathering together the elect all over the earth. We see the sign of the, the great strength and great glory of the Son of God. We see the sign of the Son of Man appearing in the sky. And we see the sign of great wonders in the heavens. In conclusion, I want to draw your attention to the verse that we kind of began with today in the introduction. Verse 35, it says, Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. The earth will cease to exist. God is going to create a new one. The heavens will cease to exist. God will create a new one. Our bodies, we will cease to exist. God is going to give us a new body. As one preacher said, it'll either be a glorified body or a horrified body, and I'm going with the glorified one. We see that, that, that if the Bible says, if the Bible is true in every area, if we believe the Bible is true in the beginning, that God spoke the world into existence in six literal days and rest in the seventh no more than 10,000 years ago, then we can bank on the fact that God's word is going to be true in the ending. You see, it's either all true or none true. You can't have both ways. It's either all true in the beginning or not at all. Or it's either all true in the beginning and ending and everything in between. So today I'm going with Jesus. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. I don't care what your theology is. I don't care what your denomination is. Everything that's going on in, verse, in these verses in chapter 24 is going to take place because Jesus said it was going to take place. Bible prophecy was not written to scare us. It was written to prepare us. Bible prophecy was not written to frighten us. It was written to enlighten us. Hey guys, thanks so much for tuning in to the Jumpstart Your Faith podcast channel. As a token of my appreciation for you listening today, I would like to give you my free ebook devotional called Jumpstart Your Faith, 30 Days to a Renewed Faith in Christ. Just go to www.pastorbrianratliff.com to download it. Please be sure to subscribe to this podcast channel to listen to more messages like today's. And if these messages have been helpful to you, please leave a review. If I could be of any help in your spiritual walk, please let me know by emailing me at pastorbrianratliff at yahoo.com. And one last thing, if you're in Roanoke, please consider joining us for one of our worship services at Clearbrook Baptist Church. Until next time, may God's blessings be upon you and have a great week.